Tante Bojo, this is At the Edge of Canada with TJ Phillips, bringing you weekly check-ins with all the major players in the indigenous intellectual community in southern Manitoba and across the country. This week's show, we head out to the West Coast, unceded Musqueam Territory, University of British Columbia, check-in with history scholar Dr. Cole Thrush, who last year released through Yale University Press, Indigenous London, Native Travelers at the Heart of Empire, an ambitious historical project that laces together artistic interludes and vocalizations through the intertwining or interweaving of numerous stories of the first visitations of Indigenous diplomats, athletes, performers, artists to the Metropole, to the United Kingdom, London, England, a city that has a deep personal connection to Cole, who spent some time out there studying and working throughout his career, but really echoes or, or in some way leaps off of his first book, Native Seattle, that looked at indigenous visitors to the upper northwest city of Seattle. Cole is an amazing interview, incredibly affable, super bright. We talk about all manners of notions of of empowering Indigenous voices from the past because the key thing is, is there just isn't a lot of positive things written about these folks who first visited. And Cole, through amazing research, digs those stories out, pulls them out from underneath the censor of archival history, and he brings these folks back to life in all their glory and colorfulness that they were. We exchange our favorite stories we talk a little bit about indigenous intellectual crushes. You don't want to miss this one. This is Cole Thrush on At the Edge of Canada. I grabbed this book and I was about to dig through it and I noticed right away that you attempt to cover every indigenous visit to London since the 1500s. It <laughs> <laughs> seems like an ambitious target. So tell me, tell me how you set, you set out to narrow that down a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually, when I started this project, I did kind of feel like I was trying to, you know, cover every indigenous visitation over 500 years and, and I think that's really typical at the beginning of a book project to have that kind of really broad net to mm-hmm. cast. But as I started to work through it, I realized that there were some thematic pieces that I really wanted to pull out about the ways that the city is really entangled in Indigenous history and Indigenous territories. And so what that allowed me to do was let some of the stories drop away a bit or, mm-hmm. or sort of fall into the footnotes or um, or whatever, and allow me to really focus on particular groups of travelers for each chapter. Mm. Um, and that that took a while. That took probably three or four years to have that winnowing process really come to the front and become uh, visible in my own head. But that's that's kind of the natural process, I think, for writing books that cover this this type of scale. Yeah, and y- you do have thematic. Uh, separations that emerge naturally in the chapters. You also have nation-specific 
uh, differences that show up. You tell stories about Enochs and you tell stories about Maori people and some of the early Algonquin visitors that went to London. Um, specifically, I loved how you lined up those visits with sort of social and cultural shifts that were happening in Great Britain and in England at the time. Was that a, was that a conscious choice? Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to um, make this as much about the city as it was about the travelers themselves. And, you know, there has been some secondary literature on many of these travelers where other scholars have written about them, but nobody had really pushed it a little, you know, to the next step and say, how does this make the city look different? And one of the reasons I wanted to do this was I really wanted to... um, a friend of mine who's a, a Maori literary scholar, Alice Tipanga Somerville, a few years ago, she was at UBC, and, and she said, you know, our job in Indigenous studies is to make the Indigenous world bigger. And that's, you know, mm. legally, intellectually, culturally, politically, all those ways. And so that's what I was trying to do here, really, was to try to carve out some space in the heart of empire to say, look, Indigenous history matters here, too. Um, and, and the city is bound up, even from before English colonization happens, really. The city is already bound up in indigenous history and with indigenous lives. I love that notion of what we do is make the indigenous world bigger in yeah. academia. That's a, beautiful, that's a beautiful sentiment. One of the things you write in the introduction is the problem of London's indigenous history is an enforced silence, not the hiddenness of past events. And I thought that's exactly what you're going to do here is you're going to embolden and, and pronounce and enunciate some of these visits from early indigenous folks and, and bring them color and give them perspective. Um, but one of the things, one of the snags that I saw that came with that is there's just not a lot of written record probably available about what indigenous folks thought when they first visited the UK. Yeah, that's probably the biggest challenge with a project like this, particularly in earlier periods. The first first-hand account by an indigenous person that's unfiltered that we have comes from 1766 from a Mohegan man named Samson Occam. But prior to that, and in many cases after that, you have to sort of read between the lines to get at what um, indigenous visitors thought of the city. And, And what I found is that there are two themes. One is that indigenous visitors tend to be very critical of the disparity of wealth that they see in the city, the differences between the rich and the poor. Um, and then the other piece that they often have is a, is a critique of the ecology of the city, that it just makes no sense ecologically, which mm. is, in fact, a fair critique um, and something that Londoners have wrestled with for centuries is how do we make this city sustainable? Hmm. Samson Ockham's story is particularly unique. He was, uh, he was a minister, right? Right. Yeah, and he, well, he was Mohegan, he was a minister, he, and he went to uh, England, and what he, what he found there was that there was incredible inequity between the kings, the royalty, the royal family, and, and the plebs. Um, yeah. He was super critical of that. Yes, he was. And he never says it explicitly, but I have to think that he must have connected it to what he saw going on with his own people and the settlers of Connecticut mm. in terms of injustice. And and he uses a, a word to describe London. He, he describes it as confusion. And it's not that he was confused by the city. It's more confusion as a moral state, mm-hmm. that the city was just this kind of massive, immoral place. And he has another city in his mind as he's saying this. He's thinking of, you know, the kind of utopian Jerusalem, really, mm-hmm. because he is a Christian. Mm-hmm. And so those kinds of critiques, you know, they are there. They're not always super obvious. Um, they're often kind of implied, but they are there. Mm-hmm. One of the things that this book does, whether it's implicit or explicit, is it definitely populates London of the past with indigenous presence and indigenous articulations and characterizations. 
whether or not that was a singular goal of yours, I love how much it puts indigenous people in positions of strength in sort of historical London. Yes, and that was really important to me because so often indigenous people, especially in urban spaces, are seen as two things, either kind of a foil for modernity, so they exist only as the opposites to what's, Mm. quote, really going on, or they are portrayed as solely victims or shells or husks or or whatever. There's all Mm -hmm. this kind of metaphorical language, ghosts, that often comes up. And I really wanted to challenge both those ideas and say, look, no, these are vital histories in these places. Um, These people had agency. They were visible. They were making choices. Um, That said, I don't want to also shy away from the human cost of empire. Um, And that's a big part of the book as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, one of the chapters that really sort of brings that juxtaposition home is the chapter on the indigenous athletes that visited uh, England in historical England, especially in the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, my own study is in indigenous sport in the constitution of masculinity through sport. But to see the different versions of indigenous masculinity around sport presented straight to European and and English versions of sport was so stark just in their physicality. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's this, um, you know, fascinating anxiety that emerges in the late 19th century among uh, Londoners about whether or not English bodies, you know, everybody's becoming a clerk and a middle class and an administrator of empire and so on, whether those bodies are going to be strong enough to really maintain the empire. Uh, and so there's a, one of the things that people turn to is, is sports, so things like cricket and rugby and so on. And then at the same time, you have these indigenous athletes coming to London playing before thousands and thousands of people, and sometimes they win. And that provokes, I think, a lot of anxiety about what it, is our empire going to survive mm. uh, with these indigenous bodies um, who are being disciplined by empire, just as British bodies are being disciplined by empire. Um, it's, a, it's a really interesting kind of conflation of a bunch of different anxieties. Yeah, a conflation of anxieties is a great way to put it because could you imagine being a landowning noble person in 19th century England and have your favorite runner just have the pants beaten off of them by by some some indigenous person from New Zealand or from the United States like or from the Americas like how how would you deal with that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and what is that what are the implications of that, you know, on a larger scale if, you know, we can't subjugate these bodies what mm. does that mean mm-hmm. and and so many instruments in colonies later like residential school or indian boarding school use sport as an assimilation mechanism absolutely and now that spins that for me even though i've been studying this for years i'm like how many anxieties are there going on in that project <laughs> to subjugate those bodies that are that are going to you know the UK on on showcase tours and, and winning these exhibitions or, or or showing these just amazing demonstrations of indigenous athleticism and, and then to have that so starkly compared to something like residential school hockey teams it just it blows my mind yeah and and i think to you know to to get back to the anxiety piece i think one of the things that it's really important, I think, for those of us that work in imperial histories is to show at the same time how powerful empire is, but also how fragile it is. Mm. And, and um, the way that people resisting empire could find the cracks in it. Mm. Um, and those cracks might be um, physical, material, they might be ideological, they might be narrative. Um, but, you know, for all its strength, empire is very brittle. Mm. I like that a lot. 
Um, by way of asking you, what was your favorite story to write about, or your favorite personal, the, your favorite indigenous visit you wanna you wanna talk about? I wanna tell you about mine that you mm-hmm. that you wrote in the book. I love the story of Joseph uh, Tyendinaga and yeah. his visits to the UK. But particularly when he went to the masquerade ball, and he's and he's yeah. there almost as a negotiating diplomat for his people, uh, of the Haudenosaunee, of which he's a member, and he goes to this masquerade ball, and the Turkish ambassador just won't believe that he's not wearing a brown mask and tries to pull it off. Yep. Can you could you imagine? That? <laughs> I read that and I was like, who's the Turkish ambassador for Canada right now? And I, I went, his name's like Chris <laughs> Cotter. I was like, could you imagine him doing that to like Perry Bellegarde or Murray Sinclair? Like, well, that there would be chaos. Like, <laughs> just, just well and. And Joseph's response is to pull out his tomahawk and let out what they call the war whoop yeah. in the press, and yeah. the whole party stops dead, right? And then he just starts laughing, basically. Yeah, yeah. He's... He knows what they expect, right? And he's playing with it. Yeah, and which is so an amazing capacity to you know to maintain your showmanship and your performativity in that space. And I mean, we could be critical of his, you know indigenizing it up or whatever you want to be critical about. But the notion of you're in like the royal court and yeah. you are playing on the prejudices and stereotypes of high level diplomats. I love that notion. I also loved how he was kind of he wasn't like non plused with England. He was just I love the pretty horses and ladies. They're really nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Again and again, people are, you know, they're tried to, you know, people bring these visitors to London to try to subjugate them through the wonder of the city. And a lot of times people are like, yeah, it's interesting. But <laughs> You mentioned sort of earlier on in the book, and this goes back to Joseph Tandanaga's performance of his Indian war cry or, or what have you, that so much of the story that persists about early indigenous visitors or about these captive individuals who are being paraded at you know, court or at at circus shows or whatever for for money and for for cartoonish reasons, but that's not the case with these people. These these folks had had a lot of agency. Were often representing their nations and came with some sort of skill set, like with a with a really respected skill set. Whether you're Tainanaga who was negotiating land claim, or if you were a, a Maori rugby player, you had a, an incredible amount of skill that you were bringing to the table. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that goes back to this idea that. You know, when I started this project, people said, oh, you mean the people that they brought over as captives and put on display? Mm-hmm. And and I, that's the story that I think people have, if they know anything, they know that, and then they know about Pocahontas. And and it's far more complicated than that. And in fact, that wasn't the most common um, way that Indigenous people were presented in the city. Mm. Um, often they were there, as you say, as diplomats um, and as performers in their own right. Mm-hmm. Um, a great example of that is Pauline Johnson or De, uh, um, Wage, a Mohawk poet and performer who came to London twice in the 1890s and the 1900s. And, you know, she wasn't being handled by anyone. This right. was something that she was doing to promote her own life and her own career. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Pauline Johnson's story is really incredible, too. I, I can't remember, was it Pauline Johnson where they where where she was at the theater and people pulled up chairs to like watch indigenous people watch theater or was that a different group of people no that's the four kings oh yeah um, those are the the three mohawk leaders and one mohican man who came in 1710 and uh, yeah they were taken to see macbeth and i always think you know if you're going to highlight your supposed british superiority the last <laughs> thing you'd want to show them is macbeth really. <laughs> that's what i was thinking why would yeah. you show macbeth <laughs> 
yeah, it's a very odd thing. But there was essentially a riot at the theater, and the audience was there not to see Macbeth, but to see these four visitors. And so they basically wouldn't rest until there were chairs put on the stage so the audience could watch the four men watching Macbeth. <laughs> so there's kind of this ecology of looking going on. But one of the things I really wanted to say was that, you know, indigenous people are looking back. Yeah. You know, they're not just being looked at. Mm-hmm. What a, what, a, what a great scene, though. So, okay, so tell me which one of your stories is your favorite. Well, that is definitely one of my favorites, the story of the Four Kings, partially because it's really well documented, and, um, you know, it's right at the rise of the, the daily newspaper, and so a lot of what they're doing is being reported in the press. Their speeches are being reprinted and passed around the city. Um, after they leave, there's a, an outbreak of mob violence in the Covent Garden neighborhood, and one of the most feared gangs there calls themselves the Mohawks, so there's all this I, these ideas about savagery that are kind of mm. flying around the city. And so it's just this incredibly rich moment for a historian to really unpack what's going on. But I, I think the, the encounter that was the most moving for me was the story of an Inuit family who were brought from London or to London in 1772. And there were five of them, two brothers, their wives and a young girl. And uh, only one of them made it back home. And this, their story was really... Um, for me, in the archive, being confronted with that tragedy was a really profound experience. And it was something I, I came across early on in the research. And I almost felt like they were kind of reaching through the archive to me, saying, start with us. Hmm. And and if you can figure out how to write this story in an appropriate way, then the rest of the book will come together. So, you know, that's the one that really sticks with me in many ways. That's a really nice approach to take. Uh, when I read the se- the sequence about the Enoch family visiting um, London, I was struck with how how trips from people from the north going to the UK is still a lot is still highly a novel thing. And I was thinking about a scene from uh, Althea Arnica Burrell's uh, documentary Angry Enoch, where a group of Enoch activists go to participate in the UN and thinking and seeing them in their parkas walking through. Piccadilly Square or whatever, and, and and just showing that there is a huge stark contrast between lifestyle in the north and the highly urban metropole of, of London. So that that division still exists today. Yeah, yeah, it does. And I I remember doing a, a walking tour for um, for Perry Bellegarde and some other leaders um, back in 2013 when a bunch of folks came to London to commemorate the Proclamation of 1763. Mm-hmm. And we did a walking tour. Uh, We did one of the walking tours that's in the book. And um, I remember talking with the members of that group, and and they said they really felt like these travelers that I was talking about were Mm. kind of their ancestors. Mm -hmm. You know, they were their precursors, their predecessors. And and so I think, you know, when we see people traveling today, um, that's part of, that doesn't come out of nowhere. That's got a 500-year history. In 1502, the first indigenous people in London were Inuit people, Mm. almost certainly, Mm. you know, and that's 10 years after Columbus. It's long before any English colonies get set up. It's about 80 years before any English colonies are established. So it's it's there from the beginning. Mm. Another question I have for you, and it comes up again in the portion of the 19th century, but you you run some choice opinions from one noted author, Charles Dickens, well, what was Charles Dickens' problem with indigenous folks coming to England? Because he was pretty hot about it. He was, and you know, it was um, you know he's such a beloved figure, and yet he was this you know toxically racist man when it mm-hmm. came to indigenous North Americans, and he had apparently seen indigenous performers, some Ojibwe performers, 
um, who came in the 1840s. And he wrote a, a passage in his household words column about um, how, you know, these are, he called them humbugs. You know, they're just savage, they're immoral, they're filthy, all this sort of thing. And, and he also said, but what's even worse is the way that um, London crowds are kind of ooing and aahing over them. And then he says, if, if we have any piece of the noble savage in us, that has to be eradicated. Mm. You know, so it's, it's an eliminationist kind of language that I think is really um, powerful. It really fits in with other kinds of, you know, kill the Indian, save the man kind of language of the era that under, underpinned the residential schools. Mm-hmm. But he's really strong in that language. Mm-hmm. And one of his sons ends up being a key figure in the real resistance later on. Um, so there is a, there's a genealogy of yeah. uh, dislike towards indigenous agency and sovereignty from the Dickens family. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to ask you about a, a structural component of the book. It's unique for academic texts anyway that I've seen is the inclusion of the artistic interludes. Um, yeah. Most commonly, they look like poetry at the end or beginning of, of a chapter. But uh, give me a, a you know, sort of walk me through the notion of, of these interludes and how they work. Uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not necessarily pedagogically, but certainly intellectually in the book. Yeah, so there are interludes built around different objects in the city. So mm-hmm. there's like a debtor's petition and a mirror and some other object. And in those, I really wanted to capture, um, again, the chapters really focus a lot on agency, but I also wanted to remember there is a human cost to this. And so the chapter, the interludes are um, free verse poems built out of archival fragments. And so you'll have passages of text from documents that I found in the archives mixed in with my own language about these moments of encounter. And there are six of them throughout the, the book. And what I really wanted to do was, again, have readers encounter the story not just from the neck up, but actually have kind of an affective encounter with this story. Um, I wanted them to really get at, you know, this, this cost lives, this, this process. You know, an mm-hmm. 11-year-old Ottawa war captive who's brought to London in the 17th or in the 18th century, um, and we don't know what happens to him, but his body becomes the model for a statue in Westminster Abbey. You know, that's that's the real deal. That's what colonialism looks like. Mm-hmm. And so it was really important for me to try to capture that. And one of the book reviews described those interludes as being like a, a record of archival experience. And I didn't set out to do it that way, but I think that's kind of what they are. This is what it's like to be in the archive with these unvarnished sources. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it, actually. I like that a lot. Um, uh, another thing I want to give a shout out to is the cover art on the book. It's incredible. For those who haven't yeah. seen it yet, a group of indigenous men sort of recreating um, the Fab Four, the Beatles walking across uh, the street, across the crosswalk with some with some uh, old automobiles in the background. Uh, who, who did your art? And uh, give them a shout out. Absolutely. Yeah, that that makes the book, I think. it's um, The artist is America Meredith. She's a Cherokee artist. And it's um, commemorating, it was done in 2012 to commemorate a 1762 visit by three Cherokee leaders. Um, and in 2012, the Cherokee Nation sent a um, delegation to kind of follow in their footsteps. And America was, was part of that project and put this piece together that's highly ironic. It's And it does work for me in the sense that it's immediately 
recognizable as mm-hmm. London. It's mm-hmm. Abbey Road. It's iconic. Mm-hmm. But it's obviously indigenous at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, these are obviously indigenous figures. And also, it, it just it's so colorful and bright. And um, everybody responds very strongly to that image. And it, it's ironic because um, the university, the press that published at Yale, was not actually keen on the image initially. Hmm. They wanted something that was more sort of staid and you know, maybe an 18th century oil painting or something like this. And I just said, no, you've got to use this. Yeah. By an indigenous artist, it does what we need it to do. Yeah, it's actually amazing. And I have a lot of books on my desk around indigenous research right now. And yours is the one people pick up and flip through the most. And uh, definitely a hat tip to America Meredith and the great art that she does. Um, yes, she's for, an for amazing artist. Um, Another question I have for you about London is certainly, uh, regardless of the amazing, empathetic, and incredibly empowering way that you portray indigenous folks and indigenous uh, writers in your book as well, but there clearly is a deep uh, emotional and powerful relationship that you have to the city of London. Um, Tell us a little bit about that relationship. Yeah, it's a city that um, I've traveled to a lot over the years. I used to be married to a Londoner, and we would go there quite regularly. And whenever I was there, I was just so impressed with the the, uh, palimpsestic nature of the Mm. city. So the nature of the city is this kind of layered space where all these layers of the past kind of rupture through into the present. And I just became really obsessed with that landscape. And the whole time I was thinking, oh, I wish I was a British historian so I could write about this city. <laughs> and then um, and then my husband at the time jokingly said, well, just write a book like your first book, which was about Native history in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Just do that about London. And I thought, what a great idea. And that's kind of where it, it started off. But there's there was a sense of, of, there's a strong sense in London of kind of hidden Londons within London, sort of these hidden cities. And I've always been really drawn to that idea of the lost rivers of the city that are buried underneath or platform nine and three quarters and Harry Potter, these <laughs> kind of magical landscapes within the city. And and when I started this project, I thought I would be uncovering a hidden history. And what I found very immediately was that this history was not hidden at all. It's just been forgotten or disavowed. Hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. I'll get you out of here on this one, Cole. I ask, okay. I ask all my guests this question. Who is your indigenous intellectual crush right now? Oh, my. That's tough. There are a few I'd like to choose from, but I have to say the one that I am most excited about right now, I, I'll say two. Um, <laughs> okay. One is Zoe Todd, mm-hmm. the um, Métis uh, scholar, um, and the other is Billy Ray Belcourt. Uh, the the poet um, from uh, Drift Pile, First Nation. Mm -hmm. Um, Both of them are doing amazing work, um, and they're they're bringing forward approaches and sort of fearless voices. They're taking real risks, and it's just really great to see this whole new generation of scholars coming up. So I'm, that's, I don't know if crush is the appropriate word, but (laughs) those are the folks that when I, when people come to my work and they like my work, I say, okay, if you like what I'm doing, go here, read these other people, you know, and then I try to get out of the way. So You're the first one to remark on on the word crush. Um, most pe- people just interpret it whatever they, way they want, but you're right. Crush might not be the right word for yeah. <laughs> the relationships we build with our favorite uh, writers and thinkers. Zoe yeah. Todd, of course, is amazing. She's doing really cool work with uh, fish cosmologies and fish epistemologies from Métis yep. perspectives. And, yep, and the Anthropocene stuff that she's doing, indigenizing the Anthropocene, I think is super interesting. Yeah, and uh, Billy Ray Belcourt was a guest earlier this year. 
Oh, great. So his poetry is fantastic, and his academic work is through the, wor- through the roof as a sort yeah. of a queer indigenous affect theorist. Yeah, and a, you know, and a Rhodes Scholar who was in the heart of the empire and, and has written really powerfully about that. I should have known that you were going to pick Billy Ray then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's, he's fantastic. Absolutely. I have his theory, uh, to, towards a theory of decolonization poem uh, stapled t- to the wall of my office, and I make everybody look at it when they come in. Great. Mm-hmm. That's very awesome. Anyway, Cole uh, Rush, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us about your new book, Indigenous London, Native Travelers at the Heart of Empire, and for everything that you do in the name of rehistoricizing, telling Indigenous stories, empowering Indigenous folks of the past and, and giving them presence and, and agency and sovereignty and purpose in these stories. Just thank you so much for everything that you do. Absolutely. Thank you for the interview. At the Edge of Canada is produced at the UMFM studios on the University of Manitoba campus in Winnipeg, Manitoba. The University of Manitoba is situated on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, the Cree, the OJ Cree, the Dakota, and the Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. You can get all updated podcasts and live streams for At the Edge of Canada at umfm.com, or you can listen to us live on the UMFM app. The lead track is Nahewak Starlight. And if you like what you hear from me, you can follow me on Twitter at TFillers. Up next, your campus today.